Well, over the last couple of months, we've been walking through the letter of 1 Peter, which is a letter that was written to dispersed Christians in the first century in Asia Minor within the Roman Empire. The aim of Peter's letter is really to remind these Christians of their new identities in Christ and really to remind them of who Jesus is and, and what he's done for them, but also is to give them instructions for how they are to live as faithful, subversive witnesses in a pagan society that was hostile to their Christian faith. Let's be clear, while these Christians were not yet facing state-sanctioned violence, they were certainly beginning to face societal pressures, suffering, and persecution for their decision to follow Jesus as Lord. And we know that it only got harder and harder to be a Christian over the next century. Despite that fact, we also know that the church didn't only survive the persecution it faced, it, it continued to grow in the decades ahead. This leads us to ask the question that Larry Hurtado asked in his book, why on earth did anyone become a Christian in the first three centuries? One pastor has summarized the, the answers in Hurtado's book by pointing out really five things five characteristics that made the early church unique and compelling to the world around them. And this would be true of, G, of Peter's readers as well. So those five things are first, that one, that the early church was multiracial and experienced a unity across ethnic boundaries that was startling. This wasn't true of most ancient faiths. Most ancient faiths were tied to your land or to your people. So to be multicultural, multi-ethnic was startling. The early church was famous, second one, was famous for its hospitality to the poor and the suffering. Third, it was a community committed to the sanctity of life, often rescuing babies that were left and abandoned on trash heaps, often mainly girls because they were unwanted. Four, it was a sexual counterculture. And these things made Christianity peculiar in the society that it was in. It was, it was a compelling community to those who witnessed them. And while all these characteristics made it a counterculture, I think the fifth one is maybe the most confounding and supernatural of all. And it's this, this. The early church was a community of forgiveness and reconciliation. The early church was a community of forgiveness. It was this practice of forgiveness that's at the very heart of the gospel message that I believe most distinguished the early church from the world around it. And it's this supernatural ability to forgive others that I think still most demonstrates the gospel and goodness of Jesus today. And it's to this idea that Peter turns in our passage this morning, verses eight and 12, eight through 12, are really the conclusion of the preceding section that began with 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12 where Peter charged his readers to conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles so that when they slander you as evildoers, they will observe your good works and will glorify God on the day he visits. After speaking to some specific situations in which they could conduct themselves honorably, to how they interact with governing authorities, to servants with masters, and then finally to the marriage relationship, Peter begins verse 8 with, finally, all of you. So this is a passage that's addressing all Christians, every person who's a part of the community of Christ. And at the heart of Peter's words in these verses 
is the exhortation to be a forgiving community. In fact, if I were to title this passage or this message, I'd probably say forgiven people are forgiving people. Forgiven people are forgiving people. And as we read, I want us to notice four things. First, the preconditions of forgiveness. Second, that forgiveness goes beyond non-retaliation. Third, that forgiveness doesn't just happen. And fourth, that forgiveness requires faith in God's justice. First, notice the preconditions of forgiveness. In verse 8, Peter writes, Finally, all of you be like-minded and sympathetic. Love one another and be compassionate and humble. He lists five characteristics that he expects Christians to live out. But this list is really not unique to 1 Peter. If you were to flip over to Romans 12 or even Philippians 2, you would find virtues that, that feel very similar to those listed here. It seems that the New Testament really expects us to embody these traits. Can you believe that? But just imagine for a moment, think about these five traits. Just imagine what it would be like if everyone in the community were striving to live out these values. What kind of culture would that create? Don't we want to be a part of a community that's like that? When looking at the list, maybe the most unfamiliar idea is like-minded. What does this mean? Last week I was on the phone with my best friend from college and he was telling me about a new small group that he and his wife had started at their church in Arkansas. He was encouraged, he was talking about how we're really enjoying it, how we really feel like we're beginning to live life together. And then he made this statement. He said, there are a couple of people in the group that we would probably never be friends with, but for the fact that they love Jesus and that we love Jesus. I wonder if that feels familiar to you as you're rubbing shoulders with people in Citigroup. Listen, like-minded, it doesn't mean being the same. It means that our faith in Jesus and what he's done in us and to us usurps our different cultures and backgrounds and personalities that might otherwise divide us. Let's be clear, it's the gospel message that creates a gospel community. It's gospel doctrine that creates the kind of gospel culture that Peter is describing here. We cannot experience these five characteristics in our own strengths and efforts. It's, it's not possible. It takes a supernatural work of Christ through the Holy Spirit to enable us both to embody these things and live them out. Going all the way back to chapter one, it takes new birth through the resurrection of Jesus Christ for this to happen in us. So these values should be the marks of every gospel community. But just think about how they also are the preconditions for forgiveness. A community that's built on these five values is the soil that real forgiveness can grow out of. Yes, for sure, if the other person is like-minded, if they're a fellow believer in Christ, often it, we are more prone to forgive them, at least we should be. But even if the person is not like-minded, think about it, viewing another person with sympathy, through the lens of love, with compassion, and with a humble view of ourselves, that's important. Those things are great fuel to the work of forgiveness. There's so much more I could say here, but, but I have little time. So verse eight lists the preconditions of forgiveness, which are traits that every Christian should strive for in a body, which can only happen through the supernatural work of the spirit. 
Next, I want us to see that forgiveness goes beyond non-retaliation. Look at verse 9 with me. It continues, not paying back evil for evil or insult for insult, but on the contrary, giving a blessing. Since you were called for this, so that you may inherit a blessing. The church is meant to be a forgiving community. But note how different forgiveness is supposed to look like for the Christian. Because you, you might hear me and you might be tempted to say, okay, okay, Brett, when someone punches me, I won't punch them back. Or when someone belittles me, I, I won't return the favor. I'll just grin and bear it, I'll just, I'll just take it. But Christian forgiveness goes beyond simply not retaliating, but to actually giving a blessing to the one who has hurt or offended us. What? But listen, the crazy thing is this is not even radical Christianity. This is the way of normal biblical Christianity. It's expected of all believers. Peter's actually taking his cue from Jesus here when Jesus told his disciples in Luke 6, but I say to you who listen, Love your enemies. Do what is good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. This idea would have sounded absurd in the honor and shame culture of the Greco-Roman world. In the context that Peter was writing to, it was expected. It was a societal norm to not only defend your honor when insulted, but also to get in vengeance on the person in order to protect your reputation. Reputation was all. That sounds a lot like the modern Colosseum of social media. Non-retaliation would have been shocking in and of itself. But to go beyond that, by extending a blessing to your offender, that would have seemed like absolute nonsense. It's almost as if Jesus wanted the church to be a counterculture, an alternate society a people that think and act and speak differently. But what does it mean to give a blessing to someone who hurts you? The word blessing here can, can mean to speak well of someone in public. But I think Karen Jobes, a commentator, points it out the real meaning here, what, what, what this text is really getting at, which is likely in mind to invoke God's favor on someone, to extend the grace and kindness that God has given to us to someone else. And specifically in this case, it's to give grace and kindness to someone who doesn't deserve it, who actually deserves exactly the opposite of grace and kindness. For those of us who love practical directions, one of the clear ways that Jesus says that we can extend a blessing is through praying. Pray for those who mistreat us. It's been said before, but it's really hard to hate someone who you are consistently praying for. It's really hard to continue to hold unforgiveness towards someone you're consistently bringing before the Lord. In his book, Life Together, Dietrich Bonhoeffer describes the importance of prayer in creating a, creating a community of forgiveness. He wrote, a Christian fellowship lives and exists by the intercession of its members for one another or it collapses. I can no longer condemn or hate a brother for whom I pray, no matter how much he troubles, trouble he causes me. His face, that before may have been strange and intolerable to me, is transformed in intercession into the countenance of a brother for whom Christ died, 
the face of a forgiven sinner. But Bonhoeffer is saying is that as we bring someone before the Lord in prayer, in this case, specifically a fellow believer of Jesus, God does the transforming work in our heart to change them from a hated enemy to a beloved brother or sister for whom Christ loves and for whom he died. Listen, the, the act of prayer is critical to the work of forgiveness. Now, if I were a betting man, and of course I'm not, I'm a prayer, I'm a pastor. Thank you. I wrote that in for that. But if I were a betting man, I would wager that there are more of us in this room holding on to unforgiveness this morning than we'd like to admit. And I believe, whether you meant to come here or not, that Jesus has brought you here this morning because he wants to invite us through the apostle Peter into a deeper understanding of the gospel, into a deeper experience of him. Because if you haven't yet, you should be asking, how is this even possible? Or you might be saying something different to yourself. You might be saying, Brett, you don't understand. You don't, you don't know what that person did to me. You don't know, you don't understand how much they hurt me. How can I forgive them? Jesus has a parable that I think is helpful here. In Matthew 18, 23 through 35, he tells the parable of the unforgiving servant. In a story, in the story, a king is looking to settle all his accounts with his servants. And there's one servant who owes him a debt of 10,000 talents. Now, I could try to do some cool biblical math and show you how much this is, but just know this is an unpayable amount. This servant couldn't hope to work off or pay off this debt in a thousand lifetimes. When the servant knew that he and his family and all he had would be sold to pay for the debt, he begged the king, be patient with me and I will pay you everything. Then the master of the servant had compassion, released him and, forgive him, and forgave him the loan. Don't miss it. This is pure, unmerited grace and mercy. There is no way this servant could have actually ever paid this debt. But the king didn't just not punish the servant. Actually, notice he went beyond that. He essentially paid the debt himself, but because to forgive the 10,000 talent debt, he had to absorb the cost of the debt. Hear this, friends, forgiveness is never free. There is no such thing as free forgiveness. It always costs. Someone always absorbs the cost. And here the king absorbs the cost in order to forgive it. But then comes the turn in the story. When the servant who had just been forgiven this unpayable debt comes across a fellow servant who owes him a hundred denarii. And if a denarius is about one day's wage, this other worker could have worked off and paid off this debt in about a hundred days. Listen, this guy's debt is nothing compared to the debt that this other servant was just forgiven by the king. Nothing, not even close. But despite the incredible grace and mercy he had just been shown, the servant does not respond with compassion when his fellow servant essentially uses the same words he did to beg for forgiveness. He says, be patient with me and I will pay you back. But the servant wasn't willing. 
Instead, he went and threw him into prison until he could pay what was owed. When the king heard about this, he was incredulous. He said, you wicked servant. I forgave you all the debt because you begged me. Shouldn't you also have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? You see where this is going, right? And the king had the servant locked up and punished until he could pay the debt, which was never. And then the story ends with a statement that should make our eyes grow a little bit wider this morning. Verse 35, so also my heavenly father will do to you unless every one of you forgives his brother or sister from your heart. You need to let that sink in. That's not the only time the Bible says that. Jesus himself says it multiple other times right after he teaches the Lord prayer. He says it, unless we are forgiven in the way we've been forgiven, we can't hope that we are forgiven. These are heavy words. Jesus told this parable in response to a question from the apostle Peter about how many times we are to forgive a brother or sister when they sin against us. Don't you just love the apostle Peter? He's like, maybe seven, Jesus? Seven times that good enough? Jesus, no, no, I tell you, 70 times seven. Jesus is essentially saying, you are to forgive always, continually, every time. Again, I need you to hear this. This isn't a call to something radical this morning. This is normal biblical Christianity. Forgiveness is expected every single time. Why? Well, because of our sin, we owed an unpayable debt to God. There is no way we could have ever worked off our debt with any of our good, we, good deeds, strengths, our own efforts. But instead of holding it over us, which he has a right to, he's God. Instead of holding our debt over us, God forgave us our debt and paid for it, for us. He said, I'll pay the debt when Jesus went to the cross. I'll pay his debt. I'll pay her debt. I know it's unpayable. I'll take it. So here's what this parable is getting at and what I believe Peter is implicitly saying in our passage this morning. And I know what I'm about to say. If you refuse to forgive someone, either inside or outside the church, and if you continue to withhold forgiveness from someone who has hurt you, you need to wrestle with whether or not you've experienced the grace of Jesus. You need to wrestle with whether or not you truly understand the gospel. Because it's just assumed, I mean assumed in the scriptures that those of us who have truly experienced and received the undeserved mercy and grace of Jesus as he forgave us an unpayable debt will in turn turn and forgive those who hurt us. In the same way, I'm not saying the other person deserves it. They don't. But Jesus paid an unpayable debt, and we in turn look to extend undeserved grace and mercy to those who hurt us, no matter how big or small the offense. And we forgive because as the end of verse nine says, because we were called for this so that you may inherit a blessing. We were called for the work of forgiveness. Don't miss what he's saying there. Forgiveness is core. Forgiving others is core to what it means to be a Christian. But we also do it to inherit a blessing. What blessing? 
both the blessing of our inheritance that is ours in Christ eternally, this future blessing, but also the blessing of being a part of him bringing his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven here and now. When we forgive, we are participating in the life of the kingdom. And real freedom and joy are just on the other side of extending forgiveness to someone who doesn't deserve it. That's a blessing we can experience now. Listen, forgiveness goes beyond non-retaliation. But understand this, forgiveness, this kind of forgiveness doesn't just happen. It doesn't. What I mean by that, while it absolutely takes a work of the Spirit in us, we have to act in order for it to happen. If you look through verses 10 and 11, there are a lot of active verbs. Peter is quoting Psalm 34 in these verses, which is a psalm of David. Verse 10 begins with a common refrain in the wisdom literature of the Bible. Do you want, do you want to love life? Do you want to see good days? Essentially, Peter is saying, and David, do you want to know the secret to the good life? Then they say, if so, live like this. Notice they're both negative and positive commands here. Don't do these things and do these things. Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil. Do what is good. Seek peace and pursue it. Think about these verses in the context of verse 9. Not paying back evil for evil or insult for insult. On the contrary, giving a blessing. See, when you find yourself in a situation where you have been, evil's been done upon you or you've been insulted, one of the first places that we are going to be tempted to return the favor is with our words, is with our tongue. We really like to have the last word, don't we? I know I do. Just ask Emily Wiley. Our texts keep going. I said, okay, okay. I had another okay, a dot, dot, dot. I'm going to keep going. But in Peter's mind here, retaliating against someone who has hurt you, paying them back, would be considered evil. It's just simply not the way of Jesus. So we are to turn from evil and do what is good. How do we do that when we find ourselves in a situation where we've been hurt or insulted? Well, we seek peace and pursue it. I'm so thankful that it doesn't say, do good when you feel like it. Or that it doesn't say, seek peace when you are ready. Because if it said that, Brett Wiley is probably never pursuing peace. Listen, generally speaking, forgiveness is a spirit-empowered decision and action before it's ever a feeling. Do you hear me on that? It's a decision and action before it's ever a feeling. I think verse 11 gets at this. Seek peace, that's a decision. And pursue it, that's an action. There are some people that you are never ever going to feel like forgiving. There are some people who have hurt you so and insulted you so much that there's never going to come a moment where you feel ready to forgive. And here's what I believe David and Peter and ultimately Jesus would tell you. Perform the action before you feel it. Perform the action before you feel it. C.S. Lewis puts it this way, the rule for all of us is perfectly simple. Do not waste time 
bothering whether you love your neighbor. Act as if you did. As soon as we do this, we find one of the great secrets. When you're behaving as if you love someone, you presently will come to love them. Forgiveness will not just happen. And if you wait until you feel like it, you will never forgive. So, preach the gospel to yourself. Remind yourself of what you have been forgiven in Jesus. Ask the Spirit for help and then pursue peace with that person whether you feel like it or not. And while I'm sure many of you have heard it, I think a story from the life of Corey Tinboom illustrates this idea well. Corey Tinboom lived in the Netherlands during the Nazi occupation of World War II. She and her family were Christians who hid Jews and resistant workers in their home during the occupation. Eventually her family was arrested, her father died in imprisonment, her sister and her were ultimately transferred to a concentration camp in Germany. And then a few months later, a few short months later, her sister Betsy died in a concentration camp. But Corey was ultimately released. After the war, Corey traveled around the world preaching a message of reconciliation and forgiveness. And in 1947, she found herself preaching on God's forgiveness at a church in Munich, Germany, of all places, in the place of her torment. She talked about how, as she was preaching to this congregation, she talked about how when we confess our sins that God throws them into the deepest part of the sea forever. And as people were leaving after a message, Corey met eyes with a man that's Whose mind, who made her mind immediately go back to the concentration camp. It was a guard from the camp. And immediately she was taken back to walking past this man naked while her frail sister's in front of her. And as he stood in front of her, he got in front of her and stood in front of her finally, he put out his hand and said, a fine message, ma'am. How good it is to know that as you say, all our sins or at the bottom of the sea. Since she had mentioned the concentration camp, he didn't remember her, but since she had mentioned the concentration camp, he told her that he was a guard at the camp. He told her that he had become a Christian since those things took place. He said, I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there, but I would like to hear it from your lips as well. And with his hand out, he said, will you forgive me? Can you even imagine? Can you even imagine? I can't. Corey was paralyzed for a moment with her, everything in her mind just racing, her sister who she had lost, but also the knowledge that as a Christian, she was called to forgive as she had been forgiven. She writes, and I stood, I still and still, I stood there with coldness clutching my heart. But forgiveness is not an emotion. I know that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will. And the will can function regardless of the temperature of my heart. And this is, this is what this looks like. This is what faith looks like. You wanna know what real faith looks like. Jesus, help me, she prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much, but you supply the feeling. That is performing the action before you feel it. And as their hands met, she describes the overwhelming feeling of warmth that came over her body and the tears that began to flow as she said, I forgive you, brother, with all my heart. Friends, forgiveness doesn't just happen. It's a decision and an action before it's ever a feeling. If you are living 
in unforgiveness right now and you don't feel like pursuing it with that person, here's my encouragement for you this morning. Perform the action. Perform the action. Finally, forgiveness takes faith in God's justice. Verse 12 says that we are to seek peace and pursue it because the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do what is evil. One of the potential responses or disagreements that some of you might have to what I've shared so far this morning is that I've been talking about some form of cheap grace or easy forgiveness that requires everything from the victim and nothing from the offender. Where's the justice in that? Often forgiveness and justice are pitted against each other as mutually exclusive. Some say it isn't possible to seek real justice while actually forgiving someone. But that view misses the mark of biblical forgiveness and justice. Listen, I know that some of you have been deeply hurt by others, that you've had to endure abuse, abuse and trauma that's been inflicted on you that no person should have to endure. God's word to you and your pain is not, hey, that doesn't matter, just forgive and move on. That's not what God says. No, the promise of verse 12 is that the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, that God sees you. He does. That he sees you in your pain and hurt, and it matters to him. And his ears are open to your prayer. Christian, you're his son or daughter. The same psalm says that God is near to the brokenhearted and that he saves the Christian spirit. That's his promise in your moments of greatest pain and hurt. So you can turn to him in prayer and he will meet you there. He sees you. Our passage ends with, but the face of the Lord is against those who do what is evil. Listen, forgiving, forgiveness doesn't just say, hey, what you did doesn't matter. It doesn't say that what you did is okay or that it's not worthy of punishment or justice. It's possible to pursue both. Forgiveness says, God, I trust that you are the just judge and that ultimately you will right every wrong. Think back to chapter two in Jesus' example in the face of unjust suffering. Verse 23 says, when he was insulted, this is Jesus, when he was insulted, he did not insult in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. Forgiving someone who has done something wrong to you means entrusting yourself to the one who judges justly. Ultimately, forgiving someone is an act of faith. It's an act of faith. It's saying, God, you are the only truly impartial and just judge, not me. Listen, it's saying, God, judgment is your job. Forgiveness is mine. I trust you. Judgment is your job. Forgiveness is mine. I trust you. But someone in this room is saying still, yeah, Brett, but you still don't understand. You don't understand what he or she did to me. Does God really expect me to forgive them? And my gentle answer, and I'd love to listen to you if you need to share your story. My gentle answer is yes. Why? Because as verse 9 says, you were called for this. 
Forgiveness is a core aspect of what it means to be a Christian. But listen, if that's hard for you to go to, maybe even more personally, I would say, yes, forgive them because you need it more than you know. Listen, forgiveness doesn't always mean reconciliation. Forgiveness doesn't, forgiveness doesn't mean returning to an unsafe situation or unsafe relationship. But living in unforgiveness will ultimately crush you under the weight of bitterness. You'll never be able to live in the full freedom of the Lord while harboring unforgiveness. Corey Timboom went on in her story to say, I knew forgiveness, not only as a commandment of God, but as a daily experience. Since the end of the war, I had had a home in Holland for victims of Nazi brutality. Those who were able to forgive their former enemies were able to return to the outside world and rebuild their lives, no matter what their physical scars were. Those who nursed their bitterness remained invalids. It was as simple and as horrible as that. As that. Bitterness is the root that destroys and forgiveness leads you into the blessing of real joy and freedom in the Lord. Let go of your bitterness. Let go of your bitterness and take hold of the grace of Jesus this morning. Let me close with this thought. When, when an offense or a hurt has broken a relationship in the church among fellow Christians, sometimes we ask whose responsibility it is to forgive. Whose role is it to initiate reconciliation. I love what Tim Keller says in response to this question. He says, if a relationship is broken down, it is always your move to initiate relationship repair. Matthew 5 says, if your brother has something against you, you go to him. While Matthew 18 says, if you have something against your brother, you go to him. So it doesn't matter who started it. A Christian is responsible to begin the process of reconciliation regardless of how the alienation happened or began. Friends, don't wait. Don't wait for the other person to start the process of forgiveness and reconciliation. We were all called to this. And there is no better moment than the present. Listen, it doesn't always mean there has to be a conversation. Whether it's just something that needs to happen in your heart, that's a real release that needs to happen in your heart, or if a conversation does, does need to happen because reconciliation needs to happen. Let's be the kind of community of forgiveness that the gospel is supposed to create. So who's responsible for reconciliation? Who's responsible for forgiveness? The Bible's answer is we all are. We have been forgiven an unpayable debt through Jesus. The gospel is the foundation for our forgiveness. We've been forgiven an unpayable debt through Jesus. And because of that incredible reality, we can forgive our brothers and sisters their debts as well. Let's pray together.